Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. It's a big week for your people, David. My people? Where are you getting that, Sam? Uh, there was some sporting that happened recently in Toronto. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. Was it good? Yeah, it was great. Um, the baseball squad, do you know what their name is? Are you talking about the Toronto Blue Jays? Yes, the Toronto Blue Jays. I am familiar with them. They were quite victorious. I guess this will be about a week ago. Wait, at what? At playing baseball. They made it into the second or third round of the playoffs. Oh, that's good. So how close are they to winning everything? One or two series away. What's a series? Uh, <laughs> like a World Series? Uh, the World Series is the last one. Okay, so they're two away from the World Series. One away from the World Series. Oh, no, okay. How do I benefit from this as someone who is from Toronto? They actually have a player on their team who's Jewish. But who's the player? Kevin Pillar. Oh, yeah? Do you know him? Uh, I don't know him personally. So wait, are you bringing this up because you think I might know him? No, I'm just telling you that you should care because there's a Jew on the Toronto Blue Jays. Do you think he got the high holidays off? Probably not. He's no Sandy Koufax. Uh, that's lost on me. Sports listeners. But he, he's, is he famous for getting the high holidays off? Yeah, Sandy Koufax took off Yum Kipper. Uh, okay. So, I mean, the high holidays are over. But over the last month, we've had several celebrations of colonialism. You had Columbus Day in the United States. You had Thanksgiving here. You had another Thanksgiving in the United States again. Yeah. I don't know about you, David, but it kind of felt that we were removed growing up in a somewhat closed jewish community from the celebrating of thanksgiving yeah it was definitely the same for me along with most state holidays but i think as a result of that and also because of a lot of very entrenched narratives about ashkenazi jews here in canada the discussion around thanksgiving and the broader discussion around our place in settler colonialism here tends to be one that is very easily shrugged off yeah there's this weird dynamic where we understand the migration of Eastern European Jews as being very much a late 1800, early 1900 phenomenon. But at the same time, we kind of put on a pedestal some of the early, what people refer to as the early Jews who were in North America. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying that some of the first European colonizers to actually set foot on this continent were Jewish people. And some of the first governors of colonies that were set up here were also Jewish people. Yeah, which points to the ways in which different waves of Jewish migration had different class backgrounds. I think it's an initial thing to point out. Yeah, but the thing I want to highlight the most here is that it's ahistorical to suggest that Jewish people do not have a role in settler colonialism here. We do. Obviously, there are many different experiences of Jewish migration and different Jewish histories and different relationships to that history here. But I can say that most Jewish communities here, all the Jewish communities that I know of here, do participate and benefit from settler colonialism. And I think that's something that we need to talk about, especially on months and days where there are very overt celebrations of this process. And even if they're not identical impulses, I think the Jewish establishment's ability to ignore its role in settler colonialism here is very much related to the ways in which we ignore the settler imperatives of Zionism. Yeah, and like even when we were trying to prepare the show for this week, it was incredibly difficult because almost everything that we wanted to talk about and I think that we should be talking about is related to what's going on in Palestine right now with this next wave of repression to popular uprising against the occupation, against the apartheid policies of the Israeli state and the expansion of colonialism into the West Bank. And the violence that's happening there right now is incredibly pervasive. And to be honest, we've talked about it, and I don't think either of us can really offer more insight than what's currently being offered online. 
But if you haven't been reading these things and you haven't been seeing these things, we'd highly suggest going to Electronic Intifada. And to add to that, there are groups that are organizing in Montreal for people listening in Montreal. So Tadamon is one group, BDS Quebec, uh, the SPHRs of both McGill and Concordia. Which stands for Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights. So there's different ways of tapping into forms of solidarity that are happening here. But that said, we did end up putting together a show where we're talking about things that are going on here that we think are relevant and also connected to some of these processes. Um, Sam, what do we have on the show today? Before discussing the content of the show, I just want to point out that the form of the show has changed a little bit. Uh, We've taken the interview segment out, but it will hopefully come up from time to time. Yeah. And on the show today, we have another installment of our new segment, BDS Watch Watch. We're going to talk a bit more about the federal election. And the return of our incredibly popular segment, Who's Invoking the Holocaust Now? So we're talking about the election again. Uh, It's gotten pretty racist. By the time you listen to this podcast, the election results will probably already be out there. But what do we need to know, David? So there have been a lot of gaffes relating to Jewish issues on the part of NDP candidates. It's gotten a lot of press. It's got a lot of media attention. And it's become a bit of a sideshow. But behind this, the election campaign has taken a turn to almost singularly focusing on questions regarding the repression of Muslim communities. Yeah, this doesn't seem to be a new phenomenon in the Western world in the last 15 years, but it has certainly gone to a different level in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, the Conservative Party announced that they're going to have an RCMP tip line for what they call barbaric cultural practices, where they're encouraging people to report their Muslim neighbors. They're continuing to fight to prevent women from wearing the niqab during citizenship ceremonies and now saying that they're looking into banning public servants from wearing the niqab at all. Yeah, it's not just the conservative party. This is something that is to a greater and lesser extent happening across the political spectrum. Um, The bloc has been going very hard in Quebec on the explicitly anti-Muslim political mobilizing. Yeah, the bloc had these ads. Did you see the ads where they had oil dropping from a pipeline and then the oil turned into a woman in a niqab and it said... I think I said too much or enough. Yeah, it was a very weird conflation of an old white Francophone environmentalist. Yeah, and the reason that we're bringing this up is because all of this anti-Muslim jockeying in terms of the electoral campaign is affecting things on the ground in a really tangible way. Like People are getting attacked on the streets. There are all these stories happening. There's already a context of increasing anti-Muslim violence happening, according to pretty much anyone gathering statistics. Yeah, and I guess the institutional Jewish response has been more of the same, ongoing participation in the factors that cause this kind of anti-Muslim or anti-Muslim rhetoric and fear-mongering. Yeah, but that's been longstanding and is definitely something that isn't distinct to this new uptick. I think that something that is distinct that's going on here is the way that this discourse is kind of intersected with the right-wing response to the Syrian refugees. I don't know if you noticed this. Did you read that Canadian Jewish News article that came out? They had a for and against taking in Syrian refugees. No, I didn't see that at all. So the argument against was that refugees are fine as long as they're not Sunni or Shia Muslims. Oh, wow. And that echoes the Harper government's stance, which is that they only want to take in what they call persecuted ethnic minorities, which essentially means anyone who isn't Sunni and Shia Muslim, which is the vast majority of the entire country of Syria— They won't let in as refugees. And they actually went, the Harper government went as far as to reroute all applications to their office so they could weed out any potential Muslim applicants. And you're seeing this same sentiment kind of take root within the Jewish community as being put out in the Jewish press. And it's being normalized, I think, at a level that it wasn't before in terms of migration issues. 
But there is some lip service that the Jewish community is paying to opposing these tendencies. It's a liberal response that does actually oppose. But, but what, I, what do you mean? What do you mean by the Jewish liberal response? Well, I mean, I think we saw it when there was a Toronto Star article this week opposing C24, which kind of bemoaned the fact that Jews who, in theory, have the right of return to Israel are considered second-class citizens. And similarly with the niqab stuff, I think there was a piece in the CJN last week or two weeks ago that addressed the need for Jewish solidarity with people choosing to wear religious symbols. But I think that that position or that liberal Jewish position often centers the Jewish experience as opposed to understanding who the actual targets of this violence are. Yeah. And, and just to clarify to people listening outside of Canada, Bill C-24 was a bill that changed the way the criminal justice system treats people who are convicted of terrorism and now gives the government the ability to actually strip those people of citizenship if they have dual citizenship to any other country besides Canada. And some elements of the Jewish community came out against this. They, they realized that Israel's right of return gives them eligibility in another country and thus under this legislation if any of them were convicted of terrorism which they won't because it's a tool to repress muslim communities they could be stripped of their Canadian citizenship but i think that liberal response is actually pretty marginal and i think we're seeing an increase of it right now because there is definitely an effort on the part of the liberal elements of the jewish community to convince other jewish people to vote for anyone that isn't harper in this election so you're seeing all these articles telling us why harper is bad for jews why all this legislation that's come out is bad for Jews, and if we only voted for the Liberal Party, the Jewish community would be fine, which, in my opinion, is equally as ahistorical and ridiculous as the arguments coming out of the Conservative Party's supporters in the Jewish community. It seems that regardless of who wins, this anti-Muslim violence is a very real byproduct of this process. And now it's time for... Who's invoking, invoking the Holocaust, Holocaust now? now? Moving along to the election south of the 49th parallel, 45th parallel. I'm no geographer, Sam. All right. Well, moving to the election happening in the United States, one of the frontrunner candidates in the Republican primary, a Ben Solomon Carson, has doubled down on a passage in his campaign biography in which he argued that the Jews may have diminished the likelihood of the Holocaust if they were armed. If they were armed. If they were armed. So there was a mass shooting in Oregon a few weeks ago, and that resulted in all of these politicians being asked their opinions on it. And some intrepid journalist dug up a passage from Ben Carson's book that basically said something to the effect of, oh my God. Uh, if Jewish folks had guns during the Second World War, then the Holocaust might not have happened in the way it did. Okay. Um, so wait, like Jews in Germany? Yeah, yeah. J Jews, Jews in Europe. Um and so then he was on CNN, I believe, with uh, Comrade Wolf Blitzer, and he, or he says, I think the likelihood of Hitler being able to accomplish his goals would have been greatly diminished if the people had been armed. I, I, I'm telling you, there's a reason these dictatorial people take guns first. Okay, I think there's a lot going on here that I want to talk about. And I think before talking about the most easily debunked part of it, which is the history of the actual Holocaust... I kind of want to talk a bit about gun control. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a clear argument that for anyone who doesn't draw the connection, this is a clear argument that we need to keep our guns in the U.S. because Obama is a dictator and he's taking our guns and we're not going to be free and some Holocaust is going to happen. Th I think the thing I should say is that if we ignore the ahistorical argument and ignore the context in which it's being said, that it is correct that uh, the tyrannies deprive people of the ability to arm themselves and deny the legitimacy of armed resistance. 
Oh, yeah. I, I'm not going to dismiss that point. But these same people, the Republican Party, refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of armed resistance in Palestine. Or not just Palestine. Or in anywhere. many places. And so it's absurd and ahistorical. And the, it's, so there's so much there. I mean, the, the NRA and, like, all of these pro-gun lobbies in the United States did ha not have that same position when it came to the Black Panthers. It's just the whole, the entire argument seems so disingenuous. In yeah, context. no. I mean, the interesting part is that it's clear that he crossed the Holocaust invoking line, <laughs> right? Like the ADL came out and they're like, yeah, I don't know the about this. The Anti-Defamation League for uh, new listeners. Yeah, although the, the Anti-Defamation League took an interesting tact on this one. They said, Ben Carson is allowed to think what he wants to think about gun control. So they're like, we're not going to alienate that base. However, his idea that the gun controls policy of Hitler would have contributed to the Holocaust is not true. Okay, can we talk a bit about why that makes no sense? Yeah, please. I, the, okay, first of all, the percentage of Jews in Germany— Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big one. —before the Holocaust happened, or forget Germany, just talking about Europe, was incredibly low. Yeah, I and, mean, the, the, the research that I did on the internet earlier today said that it was less than 1%. And—, and there was armed resistance. In, in the Warsaw Ghetto, yeah. there was an uprising. And how many people died as a result of that uprising? It was like thousands of people. So, yeah, it's definitely a comparison that just makes no sense. Uh, it's comparing apples in a chair. I feel like this is getting close to a gaffe we alluded to earlier, the NDP candidate who said that she didn't know what Auschwitz was until that interview. I have a feeling that Ben Carson didn't actually know a lot of details about the Holocaust until some of these interviews occurred. It's such an ahistorical argument. There, first of all, there was armed resistance. Second of failed. all, you can't blame people for being the victims of genocide. Yeah, like there's just, it makes no sense. I kind of flag this because there's a part of me that feels like this actually plays into a certain latent anti-Jewishness that is part of like the dominant white Christian worldview that I'm not saying absolves our place within white sour colonialism, but it's a kind of... It feels like it's the same. It's a similar kind of argument of like you just weren't strong enough to fight back. Mm. But you know what? I think that a lot of the Holocaust education that exists actually teaches that lesson. They actually show only passive compliance with the genocide. They don't highlight the very rich history of, of resistance. And obviously, Ben Carson and all this sentiment is horrible. And there's definitely a lot of overt anti-Semitic arguments that are exactly what you're talking about. But I think there is responsibility that falls into the lap of the institutional Jewish community and the Holocaust industry that offers this very particular narrative to people. So when that's so pervasive and it's so hegemonic that this is our understanding of what happened, it's hard for me to blame people that pick that up. So for anyone interested in the history of resistance by Jews during the Second World War, you should really check out a fantastic book that gets four thumbs up from Trafe podcast it's called five years in the warsaw ghetto oh yeah and it's written by a man named bernard goldstein yes it's actually a personal account the bundesleader bernard goldstein uh he writes about his experience in the warsaw ghetto during the holocaust and is a very detailed account of efforts to resist it so due to popular demand we're having a follow-up on our highly successful campus edition of bds watch watch on October 12th, there was an apology put on the McGill Daily's website, it's a student newspaper, and it was apologizing for what they described as an instance of anti-Semitism. Ultimately, an editor who had started in the fall wrote something in their personal account in the spring to the effect of, found myself sitting in a section of kippahs at the General Assembly. This should be interesting. 
So in the context was this was taking place while there were meetings on McGill campus debating whether or not to approve a BDS resolution. Yeah, it seems clear that this is another instance of conservatives and Zionists trolling people's Twitter or Facebook, trying to find something that they understand that dominant society will find appalling. And the argument that was made by representatives of Hillel, of Zionists on campus, was that this is anti-Semitic because this Jewish writer was not acknowledging the differences between Jews and Zionists. Which is clearly a false argument because that is the conflation that they make every day of the week. That is the entire argument of the right-wing Zionist institutional Jewish community. And beyond that, the idea that people should know the distinction between Jews and Zionists when the state of Israel and the combined efforts of the institutional Jewish community are telling people that Israel speaks for all Jews and that all Jews are Zionists is absurd. It is the role and responsibility of all Jewish leftists and anti-Zionists to make ourselves relevant enough that people do know the difference. And if people don't know the difference, it's on us. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's actually what this writer tweeted about in the subsequent days following this whole affair with The Daily. And for The Daily to come out with a statement on this and to not mention that this person was Jewish and to not give the context that this was happening within BDS meetings, I think is extremely disingenuous. And the fact that they published a letter from a representative of Hillel giving them a platform. Yeah, I mean, I am actually very disappointed with The Daily on this one. They heard the words anti-Semitism and just accepted the silencing effect that that so often has. The letter from the president of Hillel they published doubles down on the complete erasure of this writer's Jewishness and suggests that if people are interested to maybe talk to any Jews about their people and their culture and religion, that they're available as if the person who wrote this to begin with isn't truly Jewish in any way. Yeah, so I'm not actually surprised by the actions of the Halal representatives, and I'm not surprised by the Zionists on campus. Again, I, I, I am disappointed, and I do think that the McGill Daily made the wrong decision in just so quickly making a public apology and not really pushing back in any legitimate way. Yeah, there was an apology by the writer on her Twitter account, that was very diplomatic and mentioned that it is the role of anti-Zionists to highlight the differences between Jews and Zionists. And she apologized for making that conflation because it's something that as Jews on the left, we fight against on the regular. But the thing that I wanted to mention here is that as a result of this happening, the McGill Daily editorial board said in their statement that they're looking to do an anti-oppression training specifically around anti-Semitism because they haven't given enough room and thought to anti-Semitism in the operations of the paper. David, I think we'd be perfect for that. McGill Daily, if you perhaps are interested, uh, you can just walk down the street to the CKAT building and you can find us there. Grab a hold of your talus, get your tefillin correct. It's time for Shkoyach. So Shkoyach is a time on the show where both me and Sam give a Shkoyach, which is a congratulations of sorts to a person, a place, a thing that we think is great. So Sam, what's your Shkoyach for the week? I've chosen to give my Shkoyach on a positive note to one Larry Sanders. Really? Yes. Do you know who that is? Wait, like the comedian? No. Larry Sanders is in fact an 80-year-old man from the United Kingdom who is a Green Party candidate, who is the alternate version of Bernie Sanders. I don't know if you're aware of this, Sam, but 
the Larry Sanders show was was a quite popular HBO program that aired from 1992 to 1998. I have never heard of the Larry Sanders show before. <laughs> As a member of a leftist Jewish podcast, I cannot let that stand. Um, the Larry Sanders show was a sitcom mocking the late night talk show format. And uh, it was Gary Shandling's show. He was Larry Sanders. Huh. And John Stewart was on it. All these people that went on, like uh, Janine Garofalo, um, Scott Thompson, Bob Odenkirk, they're all on the show. Well, I, I, yeah, I never heard of it. Um, my squash, though, goes to a present day real life Larry Sanders, who is in fact the brother of Bernie Sanders. But. Wait, he's Larry, he's Bernie Sanders' brother? Yes, but wait, the alternate reality version of him is that he is in favor of BDS and he Whoa. and he supports kind of struggles for some degree of self-determination in Palestine. I think he's probably more two-state, but he's anti-occupation. He's a politician in in the UK and don't worry listeners, I did the research. He has the exact same accent. Wait, so he was born in the States and then moved to the UK? Yeah, they both were born in Brooklyn, obviously, and yeah, he chose to move there. I mean, Bernie moved to Vermont and he moved to the UK. I don't know exactly how it happened, but he's a few years older. And they're both socialists. They're both socialists. Bernie actually credited Larry with most of his political formation. Huh. One of my favorite parts in looking into this is the fact that uh, Larry refers to Bernie as Bernard consistently, <laughs> <laughs> which is just, I think, wonderful. And I kind of hope it might not be good for his political aspirations, but... I think we would all be better off if Bernie was referred to as Bernard consistently. So what is the Shkoyach to him for existing? Yeah, the Shkoyach goes to Larry Sanders, uh, who actually lost the most recent British election as a Green Party candidate. Do you have any clips of him to share with us? Sure, here we go. Larry Sanders, what, what is going on? These are similar constituencies of people who are backing your brother uh, in America as a backing Corbyn in this country. Well, they probably are similar people. Uh, the crucial thing behind it, I think Bernard put it, as he usually does, very well, massive inequality. We've had 40 years in both countries, the Americans a bit worse than the British, but not British not doing very well either, in which the average working people have had very little increase in their incomes. The countries have gotten more wealthy, but the vast majority of that money has gone to a very small number of very rich people. Huh. It's not what I expected. Um, I feel like I need to read more about this man. I'm instantly skeptical of his politics, as I was with uh, Bernie Sanders, and rightfully so. Um, oh, this is hardly a cosign of Bernard or Larry. I'm just telling you that they are brothers, and uh, one is a little more sympathetic to the struggle of Palestinians than the other. So you call Bernie Sanders Bernard now, too? <laughs> I feel like Larry has given me the right to do so. Like you're his brother. <laughs> I think You really need to watch Larry Sanders' show, Sam, though. All right, I will. So, Mr. Zinman, do you have a shkoyach for the listeners this week? For me, for the listeners? So, my shkoyach this week is, unfortunately, another anti-shkoyach. Another anti-shkoyach, David? There, look, I would love to give a positive shkoyach each week. Unfortunately, I'm hard-pressed to find positive things that people do. I mean, I know we gave the shkoyach to Jewish Voice for Peace in St. Louis. That was a very inspiring action they did, challenging the Anti-Defamation League and their support for St. Louis police who are killing black youth in that city. But like, I, it's very rare that we actually see positive things from institutional Jewish groups. So unfortunately, yet again, this week, I'm offering an anti-squach. All right, what is it? So my anti-squach for this week is going to a friend of the show, Janice Arnold, the staff reporter at the Canadian Jewish News based in Montreal. Because Janice Arnold wrote an article where she interviewed a series of groups that had been doing everything they possibly could 
to get the posters that BDS Quebec were putting up around Montreal down. Yeah, for anyone who wants more information on that, you can listen to the previous episode of Trafe. Short explanation, Communist Party representative is a part of their organization. If you have someone who's running for office, you're allowed to put up posters, and no one is legally allowed to take them down. So she interviews the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. She interviews private citizens who just wanted to spend all their time trying to take it down. And they're all saying how disappointed they are. They're all saying how terrible this is. And she essentially endorses this tone. Yeah, it seems like Janice Arnold went as far as she possibly could to determine whether or not taking down these signs was possible. Yet the signs themselves have pictures of Palestinian children that were killed in an Israeli airstrike. And it's saying that Harper supported this, and it's asking for the position of other political parties on this. And a quote that's published on Critically in this article by Janice Arnold is... We are disturbed that the commissioner failed to recognize the factual misrepresentation and manipulation at the center of this campaign. The thing that is the icing on this cake of is when Janice Arnold decides to approach Rabbi Israel Bernath of the NDG Chabad Center and ask him if he thinks that these signs had anything to do with the vandalism that recently happened at this Chabad. There was a vandalism at the NDG Chabad? Someone pushed over their menorah. Uh, no, I don't believe you. It's 100% correct. Um, I don't want to push traffic to this article, but in the article, they describe that on the morning of October 11th, the rabbi discovered that the 12-foot metal menorah in front of the center on Hingston Avenue had been toppled over and the base was broken. Wow. Do you think it's the same person who was the culprit in the Chicago you event? Think, you think that someone was trying to bring it to their Jewish friend? Yeah. Uh, well, there's been there's no leads. It was reported to police. There's no suspects. And uh, the motive is not known. But the rabbi says, I don't know if there's a connection between the posters and the vandalism. But, of course, goes on to say that this type of anti-Israel incitement has been known in the past to lead to anti-Semitism. Wow. We read the Canadian Jewish news a lot for the show. It's probably the most important ingredient in the stew that is this show. And a lot of articles are very difficult for us to read and are very frustrating and sometimes very racist. But this article in particular boiled my blood in a level that actually hasn't happened since I used to read copies of the Jewish Tribune that were at my mother's house. One thing to point out, we are both very happy the Jewish Tribune doesn't exist anymore. Ah, uh, thank God. But yeah, no, the, the, the leap that is taken from signs to hypothetical things happening in NDG is quite a wide leap. So anti-schoyach to Janice Arnold, anti-schoyach to the Canadian Jewish News. I'm sorry to have to issue all these anti-schoyachs this week. I wish it could have been a more positive discussion. I think we, on, on a positive note, it appears that the Canadian Jewish News is rebranding their website. Oh. So that is a positive. I think we could just give a schoyach to the Canadian Jewish News on that one. Oh my God, I cannot wait. This website right now is so difficult to navigate. It's going to be amazing when they do the revamp. Intern at CJN Twitter. We very much look forward to the rebranding of this website. So we're recording this episode on Tuesday, a day before we're releasing it. I was hoping that we could record it all in one shot last week, but because a few things came up, we decided to record the second part uh, today on Tuesday. So there's a little bit of a lack of continuity, which David doesn't seem to think is an issue. Nope. <laughs> but earlier in the show, we mentioned that we're reformatting some of the segments a little bit. One segment that is going to change slightly is the recommendation, which we have historically, or at least for the last two or three episodes, done by ourselves. So from here on out, we're 
going to get in touch with someone whose work we want to highlight and end the show on that note. Yeah, so today we want to highlight a local struggle that's being led by Indigenous women here on occupied Kanagahaga territory. And the struggle revolves around the city of Montreal's decision to dump massive amounts of raw sewage into the St. Lawrence River. We're joined by Amanda Lickers. Uh, Amanda, thanks for joining us. Uh, Can you talk a bit about where things are at with this campaign? Yeah, okay. So it's actually really interesting following the city sewage dump stuff because through the mainstream media and the calls from the federal government, there's kind of this feeling that it's postponed until November. But the thing is, the mayor hasn't actually been in any way committing to not dump. So recently there was a release from Mohawk Nation News, which is a really important resource if people want to stay on the pulse of the Gunnigahaga Onwe people. But um, yeah, who are like coming together to protect the river. And it's really, it's actually really exciting seeing the leadership, especially from young women, young mothers. And it's also really intergenerational. There's, there's a lot of older folks and elders who are really supportive and also giving traditional tools to young Onwe people who are trying to, you know, research that way. Anyway, yeah, so the mayor, you think from like watching things that with the feds, calling it off back when the PM was still Harper will be interesting to see, I guess, for if uh, the liberals even say anything. I don't even think there's going to be a response. So it looks like they're going forward with the dump on October 22nd is what I'm trying to get to. So there's actually um, a vigil by the river and folks, I think, are going to have a permanent presence. Um, It looks like folks are going to be there until there's a hard commitment from the mayor not to dump. There's no conceding to that from the Haudenosaunee own way perspective. You know, there's no ceding until that commitment is made because it's, it's, it's extremely, it's difficult to like communicate into a settler perspective, what that means, the implications of that river. But even, you know, there's senators in New York state that have dissented and tried to intervene with international regulatory bodies because of the St. Lawrence seaways, international water. Um, And so there's all these different ways that, it's going to be extremely, extremely problematic. And Amanda, if people want, who are listening want to tap into this, if they want to go to that vigil or support the presence that's going to be there, how can they do that? Yeah, okay, so really important to follow MohawkNationNews.com. We repost everything through Reclaim Trail Island on Facebook and Twitter. So if you're checking out us on Twitter, it's at Defend Our Lands. Because like, the thing is, this impacts, there's also like a huge popular support. You know, there's not one single person who lives in the city of Montreal who thinks that this is a good idea. People are like, this is the most horrible thing, but I guess we can't do anything, you know. And so there is a lot of really great ways that people are welcome to take on their own projects of organizing because it is really valuable to have multiple pressure points in a campaign like this because it has to be a high pressure campaign constantly. If people are interested in getting involved, they can contact Save the River at riseup.com and follow things through Reclaim Trail Island and Mohawk Nation News. Is there like a name to the group that's come together around doing this work? No, it's not like that at all. Okay. Um, it's Rotor in a Shoni own way. It's our people who are just doing things that we're supposed to do. I mean, this is like the law of this territory is the Ganyarko, it's the great law of peace and as Haudenosaunee people, we're just following the great law. So everyone is acting like a community member as like a, as an Ongwe person you know, like as an indigenous and there, but there's also like the meetings and stuff are open to settlers. And there has been actually a lot of Francophone support. People are just, they don't want like this. It sounds horrifying to them. You know, this, the dump. 
it's like a matter of, uh, I guess, people trying to help out. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much, Amanda. Yeah, no problem. Trafe Podcast is Sam Elliott Bick and David Elias Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where this episode was recorded in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, our special advisor, and to Zach Syndrome for music that you heard on this episode. All articles we've referenced can be found in the episode notes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Maybe we should read. Maybe we should read that article. Yeah, it's really long though. It's like this is like a think piece.